Shit Platypus Says, Episode 58. I thought I was doing well from the beginning, but you know, what did you learn from your first term that you took from and changes that you would make if you get elected? I would like to be less combative. <laughs> After being like, I won. I won in 2020. You were wrong. I got the videotapes. It's absolute bullshit. He's like, I want to be less combative. He's trying to fire up his, his base. He's trying to like, told him that he'd already won. So we already did it. Let's go out and like do it again. But I do feel like since his New York indictment, the speech that he gave right after, he was clearly like not in the same restrained. He was restrained in the words, which of course I had told him by right that day, like be careful with what you say. But also in the sort of body movements, who he was attacking, how he was attacking, and I found him like actually really rational at the moment. But I was like, oh, he's not just trying to like rattle. Like there, I felt like maybe January sixth influence, where he just has to be a lot more careful with what he says. But it felt more of a strategy of actually appearing more presidential in mm -hmm. that moment. Also, like actually changing his little tactic about how mm -hmm. he presents himself. Now, second speech. So I sent you this Miami speech, and I think that in the Miami speech, he's like using an appeal to common sense to point out how the U.S. Department of Justice being weaponized against him, that it's a political witch hunt, that that is what it is, and to recognize that, right, and to call out, like... A, the historically unprecedented force being used on behalf of the National Archives and Record Administration to go into a ex-president's oh. home to remove physically oh, from sure his home that there was at least in the violation of the Fourth Amendment, I'm which then Trump actually says, he points out, right, it's this violation of, the four, of his Fourth Amendment yes. rights. And, you know, it's all rational, meaning to go back to the characterization of being presidential. It's more combative. And yes, so because now he wants to be less combative. I mean, the thing is that that's the this Miami speech. He's calling it out for what it is. Using the entire judicial system, which what I said is like I'm sure there was like over hundred, a few hundred like <laughs> lawyers or paralegals like being paid to mm -hmm. excessively read every single piece of the law to see where they yeah. can catch him on something. Hundred percent. And of course they found like, meaning what they're treating as a, a, like, as a legal thing, but like in practice, it was not like they were applied to previous presidents. He keeps saying Clinton and the, the sock tapes, <laughs> uh, you know, Nixon took things home, like, you know, but it's Bill Clinton, <laughs> took you know, home. he lost the nuclear codes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> And, right. you know, that was in the speech in Miami, by the way. Okay, okay, okay. Um, meanwhile, I love about the little stop in Miami was like he went to Versailles. Versailles is the proper way of saying it because it's a Cuban restaurant. It's like the classic Cuban restaurant. Like where, and it's in like Calle Ocho, so 8th Street. Uh -huh. um, little Havana. 
it's a famous restaurant that's been there for more than 50 years. My grandmother tells stories of going to her work lunches with her girlfriends to Versailles. Like, it's this very... And, of course, I raised it with my family that Trump had been there because my dad was sending me videos about it. <laughs> and they were like, oh, but every present stops because it's like... In Hialeah. No, no, no. This is in Little Havana. Oh, so it's, little more, Havana. it's further south. But it's, it's La Calle Ocho. It's like the famous Cuban street. And there's like, you know, cigar joints, a whole bunch of like... Uh, a men playing domino in a park, like the domino men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, sometimes <laughs> women too, but you know, the old Cuban men as a classic. But so it's that, a mandatory. It is. Point. It has been like that's what my aunt, my Cuban aunt says. On it's like a, it's it's a presidential thing to do when you're campaigning in Miami mm -hmm. to end up to Cuba. And he was like applauded, right? Meaning I saw. Oh, those totally, clips. totally. It's like totally. a wild. Wait, hold on, let's find it. <laughs> no, my bot. I just show you the one that my dad sent me. My dad sent me one because, of course, he's pro-Trump. Uh, your father, the Cuban Republican. I am at a Versailles Cuban restaurant in uh, Little Havana, and there is such a crowd here. Uh, the motorcade has just arrived from federal court in Miami, and uh, this was, of course, uh, an unannounced visit, uh, not an official visit. Just let you see That is the crowd. So this is this is this is the visual he wants. I just left the courthouse. I'm good. I'm gonna. This guy love him. Okay. They love him. <laughs> they love him. They love him. Such a different story. Yeah. Okay. okay, okay, okay. We have to talk about the picture. The picture, the picture. <laughs> <laughs> the toilet. <laughs> the restroom. But I think, like, oh, my God. Meaning, I don't, if it's real, it's also, like, whatever. Um, I think he said right. that it's this staged. is, like, staged. Um, but, which also wouldn't, like, put it past him. Um, but yeah. I love, I love, <laughs> I love the chandelier. <laughs> So I don't mind. I'm also like, I see this and I'm like, I just feel like, right? Like an extra room in the house. It's so small. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, this is clearly That's a storage like, room. This yeah, is yeah, a storage yeah. Room. This is a storage toilet. <laughs> <laughs> like that sad plastic trash can in the front. Like what? <laughs> As if he would have a trash can for real. Yeah. No doubt he did have to rush out. Right? He wasn't expecting to lose, and he was holding on until the last minute that he could to stay in the White House. Mm -hmm. He kind of did mm -hmm. when he was doing his, like, last attempts. Mm. Um, Those last attempts. <laughs> this will be forever. Meaning this you mean, is, you this mean, is our you Abu Ghraib. Who, this is our Abu Ghraib. This is our Abu Ghraib. <laughs> oh, the, the, the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot funnier. <laughs> that was dark, girl. That was dark. So now we have chandelier <laughs> <and> <laughs> toilet. <laughs> the image of post neoliberalism. It's crisis. like a little plastic cheapo. Desperation. Dressed as what? Gilded age kitsch. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't really noticed how predominant it was until you actually told me. And then I was like, oh my God, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Florida, Miami, like we have DeSantis in Florida. Florida is really important in the primaries and in the main election, mm -hmm. right? But the funny thing is that like now Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is also running for president as a Republican. Oh, yeah. 
Florida got two. In Florida got two. Oh. Right? But it's also probably not the first time. It's like a very common place for like presidential candidates to like set the stage for themselves. Wait, so DeSantis. So we're in Florida right now. We're in Miami. Yeah. So DeSantis. Uh, he's become evil incarnate, obviously. DeSantis is still, DeSantis is still defending Trump. No, of course not. Like they've gone face, like they're they're hardcore face to face now. Mean, meaning the indictment, though, has he has he shaken? He's shaken on that. Oh, he's I shaking don't. On that I because maybe he, he's gone silent. He on was it. okay because DeSantis was outspoken about how it's political persecution. Yeah. And early on, earlier, a few now, months ago. No. Now, I, my sense is that if we would have said something aggressive shifting, I would have probably seen the headline. Yeah. So I'm assuming gone silent because it's moment to talk about the primaries. Yeah. And in that case, right, I feel like he can say both things. He doesn't need to be like 100% anti-Trump and like, you know, he's, he's trying to follow certain principles. There are certain traditional Republican Party principles. You mean to be the contender? Exactly. Yeah. Well, he's the contender. Yeah. Is the more conservative solution the problem of neoliberalism? You could have Trump, progressive, like would be Democrat if it were like the 90s or something. Yeah. But now it's this conservative Republican. It's like the culture wars resolution. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That is pushing forward the post-neoliberal moment. I think DeSantis kind of has that creepy, like he's actually now representing the post-neoliberal moment with basically retreating back from all of these like new, early neoliberal measures around identity politics, right? It increased, but of course it was like backlash after backlash after oh, decades of identity politics. Affirmative action was recently struck down. In university processes, mm -hmm. it's the clarification. But yes, right? So now we have these things that are happening, the thing is like how much of them will hold, how long will they hold, or how much do they shape the future, the next three decades of like our lives or like the American lives. Um, yeah, that remains to be seen. I really feel that the Santos is campaigning, that a lot of these things won't hold. Um, Interesting field, I think, will be watching and Florida. And the Republican, at least, and the Republican side, right? The Democrats, the big question is like, well, are they going to have a debate? No. But it would be a good show. But like, what, what if like that's the thing, right? The, the 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 meaning and significance of the debates shifts because of like they're going to have to have some sort of new form or new approach. It's a consistent move. They're consistently censorial yeah. and you know spread this kind of fuck taboos. And of course, but Mr. Like, Robert have Kennedy is pushing back against that too. Uh, okay, twenty twenty four presidential campaign. Yeah. The next year, Florida is going to be very interesting. Yes. So the <laughs> next year, let's keep an eye out. Okay, Florida. reporting live from Miami, Florida. <laughs> oh, yeah. Signing off. Both of us in Miami. Miami. Okay, bye. And the latest Fox polls. Uh, this survey was taken, by the way, after Donald Trump's most recent indictment. You think it would hurt him? Maybe. No, apparently. Lauren, he's extending his lead, right? It sure has. Uh, well. He takes a 34-point lead over Ron DeSantis. Wow. Yep, look at the numbers. 56% uh, of likely Republican primary voters supporting Trump. 22% for Governor DeSantis. Vivek Ramaswamy in third place there with 5%.
the media and the left seem to take Donald Trump literally, but not seriously, while the rest of the country takes Donald Trump seriously, but not literally. Mm. Now, I understand the allegations of having classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, but the question is, what did it matter? Did it compromise the United States? We know this is something, by the way, that's been done by previous politicians who did not hold the office of president of the United States, meaning they didn't have the classified clearance to have documents outside of a classified setting, be it Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. As Donald Trump has said, they're not after me, they're after you, I'm just standing in the way. What I mean by that is we've looked at this and experienced this over many, many different issues now. Russia collusion hoax, impeachment one, impeachment two, and this constant search to take down Donald Trump. Mm. And everyone realizes this is about something more than simply this man. And so when you see his poll numbers go up, I think this is a fatigue from the public on the, the powers that be in the United States exposing themselves right. as, as advocacy groups. When, yeah. when they're looking at this going, if they'll do it to Donald Trump. I mean, by the way, if it's not Donald Trump as a Republican nominee for president, if they'll do it to Donald Trump, get ready, Ron DeSantis. Yeah, yeah, you're right. In the following segment, Platypus members from Vienna, Berlin, Melbourne and Chicago will discuss and reflect on the panel discussion A Century of Critical Theory, the Legacy of Georg Lukacs, hosted by the Platypus Affiliated Society on April 1st, 2023. The panel description goes as follows. Strange as it is to reconsider Georg Lukacs today, After the demise of the Bolshevik experiment with which he was associated, the sanitary marking the publication of his magnus opus History and Class Consciousness, Studies in Marxist Dialectics, from 1923, offers the occasion to ask, what is the meaning of Lukács and History and Class Consciousness today? Over the last 100 years, various claims have been made of History and Class Consciousness. On the one hand, it is said to have inaugurated quote-unquote Western Marxism and set the foundation for the critical theory of the Frankfurt School. On the other, people have accused it of giving philosophical justifications for terroristic or opportunistic tendencies within Marxism-Leninism. We ask our panelists to consider the following. What is the relationship between political practice and theory that Lukács articulated in a revolutionary period of 1919 to 1925 based on his close reading of Lenin and Luxembourg? What in his critique of reification and defense of Marxist orthodoxy did the later Lukács disavow? What can we make of Lukács' legacy today? How have we received his investigation and elaboration of the problematic of Marxism? What are the essential issues raised for our time? Hello everyone. In this episode of our podcast, Chit Platypus Says, we have a number of special guests Yeah, before I'm going to introduce them, I'm going to introduce uh, my co-host, Pamela Nogales. My name is uh, Andreas. And we have with us today three different Platypus members from three different continents. And we are going to discuss our panel discussion, 
that is a century of critical theory, the legacy of Georg Lukacs. That was the closing plenary of this year's Platypus International Convention, which took place at the beginning of April in Chicago. Um, you can check out the whole recording of the panel on YouTube, and we will also put the link uh, to the panel in the description of this episode. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Hello. Yeah, so with us are Nora. Nora is a member in the Vienna chapter. Stefan. Stefan is a member uh, in Berlin. And Ryan is a member in uh, Melbourne, Australia, where it is currently uh, 5 a.m. in the morning. So thanks a lot for being being uh, with us. And Ryan, um, I want to start by asking you, you, you were involved uh, in the curation and organization of this panel. So could you give us um, a little bit of background on why uh, uh, we invited uh, these speakers specifically? What were the thoughts about what kind of discussion we wanted to host. Thanks, Andreas. So when we started thinking about this panel, we sort of start with the standard platypus triangulation, which is to have like an academic perspective on a question, a sectarian perspective on a question, and then also like a, an activist uh, perspective. And there's always some n never a perfect alignment with that, but we try and bring up those three sort of perspectives on a, on a, on a topic as we discuss it. Here we sort of started with the academic question, uh, perspective, which we straight away knew we were going to try and get Andrew, Professor Andrew Feinberg from Simon Fraser University, particularly because he had been instrumental in the 70s in this kind of new left rediscovery of Lukács. As a student of Marcuse, he had been reading, encouraged to read Lukács, and the, the, the first translations of Lukács were starting to appear in the late 60s. Uh, it has sort of been under embargo since 1923, basically. It was very hard to get a copy of and read Lukács. But it's sort of this, this new left rediscovery of Lukács. Uh, Feinberg was very um, active in that, and he discussed that a bit on the panel. Secondly, we, we brought in Mike McNair of the uh, Communist Party of Great Britain to sort of present a more sectarian perspective, not pejoratively, of course, but as a, an active member, someone who will try and bring up the history of tensions within the Comintern and Lukács, the way that it relates to various denunciations of Lukacs in the in the activity of the Third International, etc. We tried to get a Cliffite, a member of the Tony Cliffs tendency, like someone from the SWP UK or from various Australian versions of this or in, in America as well. And we couldn't get a, a, a member to speak from that tradition. But um, we then sort of glued it all together in some sense with Chris Catrone, who's the, the lead pedagogue and, and founding member of the Platypus Affiliated Society, to try and thread together those three sort of apparently disparate aspects of Marxist theory and praxis. And so he's not only a student of Moisha Postone, who was very much a, a sort of a new left and, and deeply involved in the, the reading and rediscovery of Lukács, but also spent some time in the Young Spartacist League has encountered sort of the sectarian critiques of Cliffism itself. And so there's a sort of a tension between the way that Cliffites had brought up Lukács, but also the way that a lot of the rest of the sort of Trotskyist left had criticized their adoption of Lukács. So we wanted to bring all those sort of dynamic elements into play. Can I just add one last thing that uh, Feinberg, importantly, was part of our 2011 
International Convention panel on the politics of critical theory. So this is kind of a return to a continued conversation that Platypus has had, which is now longer than um, a decade. So we'll include that in the episode description. Because we were talking about Professor Feenberg, I want to raise something, and we were talking about the new left as well. I want to open the discussion by by raising something that I found very interesting that Professor Feenberg said, and that is that um, basically the whole period or maybe even historical constellation of the new left did not provide any potential for revolution. He said, I think that there was just, um, so to speak, no a quote unquote revolutionary actuality, you know, during that whole that whole period. Still, he said that the new left has achieved a lot. You know, um, he even claimed that if this panel took place in the 1950s, there wouldn't be any women in the in the in the lecture hall, right? So, I want to ask you guys what what do you what do you make of that? How does that relate to each other? On the one hand, the new left didn't really fail because there was nothing to fail in terms of overcoming capitalism or even building a party, building a sustained political effort to do so. And at the same time, he said it did nonetheless achieve a lot. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting question, right? I think you're right to say that the new left did not have the option to overcome capitalism. But maybe that's also the wrong question which we're posing toward it, like or the wrong potential. Because what the new left tried to do was a return to Marx, right? So the whole moment out of which Lukács writes um, History and Class Consciousness and out of which uh, Karl Korsch writes Marxism and Philosophy is the product of the attempt of Lenin, Luxembourg and Trotsky to make a return to Marx. And in a certain way, it seems to be successful. They seem to reignite the Marxist revolutionary project, but it fails. The new left doesn't come that far. They don't light any revolutionary embers or like start a fire. But they're attempting to give Marxism, or at least Marxist critical thought, a renewal in a way which original Marxism, orthodox Marxism, or like Marxism-Leninism, had slandered it away as a theory of revolution. And I think the new left understood that there was a leadership needed for a revolution which was already on the way, and that the people who led it, under the name of Marxists, communists, socialist parties, did not really work toward that political goal. And in a certain way, they are the last honest reminder, even though it's not the best way of being honest, but still the new left was honest enough with itself for us to still learn something from their attempt to return to Marx and give a certain self-clarification over how they understood Marx and what they wanted to do with his thought. The formulation that he used was that we wanted to move history, that things were moving, and so that we needed to go in that direction, right? Rather than a return to Marx, which I think is like well said, because if that's the case, then what does moving with history have to do with Marxism at this particular moment? 
that's uh, also what I didn't really get. So how how is this like moving history connected to the more broad goal of socialism? So what does he mean? Like what what is his perspective on what should we do in those periods of no actuality of revolution? Well, I think he was pretty clear on that, at least in, in, in his statement, I think, because he said in his opening statements that the legacy of history and class consciousness, uh, the, the book by Lukács, um, is to, to use it in order to understand or criticize the logic uh, of reification and de reification within these social movements, you know. So the question then is, what does that mean, right? Or what could that mean? And maybe to also bring in the other speakers, the question is also raised then, or the question was raised by Chris Crotone specifically, what if we have lost sight of the very meaning of reification um, that Lukács had envisaged, you know? Like, how does that go together? On the one hand, we can use sort of concepts employed in, in, in history and class consciousness in order to engage with these social movements when there is no revolutionary actuality. But what if, you know, as Chris asked that maybe what, what if we have lost sight of, you know, let's say the function of these concepts at all? Yeah, he posed this at one point where he talks about Marxism as a kind of self-critique of the socialist movement and that thus Marxism would work through the forms of misrecognition that would necessarily be taken up by a proletariat movement, that it would have to work through the problems of being part of the disintegration of, of capitalism and that as a concept reification could help us understand those processes, but what it becomes in the absence of a socialist movement Right, Feinberg seemed to suggest that you can still hold on to it in order to understand when things, I guess, go awry. I think there's a, a sense that reification itself becomes reified, like reification becomes a thing that is like blamed. And I think this is something that Mike McNair brought up where he says, when he's describing the Socialist Worker Party, Workers' Party UK's uh, appropriation of Lukács, where reification becomes an explanation in their hands as a deficit for the lack of class consciousness. It's sort of in, in the in the 70s and 80s, it sort of becomes like an, an object of ire and blame, like, oh, if it wasn't for reification, we would have more class consciousness today, that it's sort of, it appears as this external object that is just affecting the, the worker struggle for socialism in a sort of a, a disintegrative effect. I beg forgiveness for possible over-trivialization of positions, but I felt like Andrew Feinberg was trying to solve reification like a philosophical riddle, you know, like discovering the deep backgrounds of neo-Kantianism and objectivitäts form and, you know, like all of the fun translation stuff. And For me, it seemed almost like he was saying, if we truly understood reification, we could solve the problem of capitalism. And Mike McNair, who's saying, look like this is a piece like history and class consciousness is a piece of propaganda. 
it arrives in a certain moment, it gets a certain reception in the moment in which it is written and published, it lacks a certain importance in between while it's not really available. And then he drops like two sentences about the Frankfurt School, which to his mind understood it as a dialectical revolutionary theory, but not a materialist one, if I remember correctly. This, of course, is something you don't need to understand until you're, unless you're deep into the esoterics of the Marxist left. And then you'll see that, as Chris Cutrone points out later, Mike McNair kind of considers Marx and Engels to be philosophical counter-revolutionaries, right? Like, in a certain way, engaging in a counter-enlightenment in how they express themselves, meaning being too Hegelian. And then McNair talks about the reception of Lukács. And so, for him, the theory is purely instrumental, just something which appears in real politics and gets used for real fake politics. But that's it. While Chris tries to shed some light on what history and class consciousness meant, if we read it through how Karl Korsch explains to us in Marxism and philosophy the relationship of theory and praxis, and how far Lukács tries to, in philosophical terms, tries to give an explanation of what the crisis of Marxism means and how it looks like and in how far it has been addressed by Marxism, even though Marxism had truly become reified its own counter-revolution, right, like with the First World War. And I think this is where I felt Chris was not really understood by Feinberg, and I feel in a certain way Mike McNair understands him, but he thinks it's a... It's a problematic thing, and one should not too much talk about it, right? Like walking into a philosophy trap, which has no real importance for questions of revolution and socialism, which, by the way, is the position against which Karl Korsch wrote Marxism and philosophy. You know, I agree with your characterization of Mike McNair, but, you know, Feinberg, it's true that he thinks that there's some kind of philosophical problem to crack. But then there are these moments in the panel where he recognizes, for example, that the party is necessary as a form of mediation. Like he like he answers, I, I raised a question from the audience and he says, right, yes, these contexts that we raise are related insofar as you have this crisis of the early 20th century and that the possibility of revolution requires some form of mediation. And so for Lukács, this was the party. And I was like, oh, okay, the panel is going to congeal now. Like there's going to be, they're going to talk to each other now, really. And then that point is sort of missed or repressed in the conversation. And then it's as if it never happened. Well, I mean, th thanks. I think this, this, is, this, this uh, is a very important point. And maybe it's good to tie um, the different threads together because... What I thought of, like, I thought that the question of the party came up in the discussion mediated in a weird way by the question of the bourgeois revolution, you know, because one of the most clearest statements, and I think it's very good that we, we sort of have that by Mike McNair, was that there, there is, like, the self-consciousness of bourgeois, the revolutionary self-consciousness of bourgeois society 
does not play a role for Marxism, right? Stefan, you, you mentioned that earlier. Like he said that um, capitalism is the transition from feudal society to socialism, right? Chris, in response to that, then said something to the lines of, but what do we make of the self-understanding of, you know, Marxists, but also the founding of the Second International, you know, because in their self-understanding, they saw themselves in the tradition of the bourgeois revolution, right? And I think this raised a very, like, interesting question. And okay, so if, you know, the bourgeois revolution and its self-understanding does not play a role for Marxism, how does it then, what do we do with the fact that the Second International was founded on, like, in the, on the centenary of the, the French Revolution, right, in 1889? And this, I think, relates in an interesting way to, to how Feinberg, you know, still, still is able to see, like, how the party, you know, was supposed to mediate the self-contradiction of bourgeois society in a political, in a political way. So I think this this is like this was a very interesting I think triangulation how these questions of you know the party history and class consciousness and sort of the crisis of the bourgeois revolution came together in a way in the panel. I mean I don't want to be repetitive but uh, Kosh in Marxism and philosophy writes almost verbatim that bourgeois the bourgeois revolutionary movements and bourgeois radical philosophy come to hegel the proletarian revolutionary attempts for socialism and the theory of marx and engels should be considered as four mov movements of the same momentum of the same dynamic so right when chris raises this he is raising it not out of his personal favoritism for this or that thinker, but about like, he tries to shed light on how these people who wrote these books understood themselves. And while of course, we need to try to make sense out of what we find in the history uh, of the left, I think maybe the things we can understand right now aren't the most important things, so to speak, right? Because we're not really in a revolutionary situation in which we could maybe understood how this could guide us if a 100 year old book could guide us, I don't know, right? But I think it's important if we really want to take a look at the thought of the historical left and these historical thinkers on the left, then we need to at least try to look at it how they try to to understand themselves, right? That's meant with the relationship of theory and praxis, that the thought which was produced by the revolution as well as the revolutionary action have some deeper meaning and that we can't really pick this or that out of that tradition and favor it, but only try to learn from how far it failed. Well, I guess this is where I feel I find Feinberg a bit slippery. So on the one hand, he recognizes that there is a critical turning point in the early 20th century that has to do with the problem of mediation, the problem of the parties. So that's like on the one hand, he puts a pin on, he's like, okay, so I've said that. 
And then in another part, much later in the panel, he gives a thumbnail sketch of what he thinks that Lukacs means by the concept of reification. And he says, and I'm quoting, I think that Lukacs' reification concept is really a very important innovation in the history of Marxism because it goes beyond the limits of the 19th century industrial economy that Marx was dealing with to bring us into a 20th century economy that's based on bureaucracy and wide-scale mechanization and the rationalization of the social order. So for, for him, those two statements are both true, right? And it's sort of like, okay, but do we mean like bureaucratization? Is that what reification means for Lukacs? Or is he trying to intervene and trying to clarify a crisis of Marxism in the early 20th century? And if that's the case, and if that particular concept is trying to understand this problem, trying to be a tool through which to understand this particular problem in the history of Marxism, can you just take it out of its original problematic and then apply it to a concept of bureaucratization, right? Because when he said that, I heard the new left speak, you know, the administered society, right? Okay, maybe you could use Lukács to critique like the administered society and you don't have to deal with the absence of the Revolutionary Party at all. I mean, of course, that's where he comes from, right? Like one-dimensional man, the worst of Marcuse. Like Marcuse is fucking important. You should definitely read Marcuse, but this book is the bane of the new left. It's fun. He said it's fun. <sighs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Fun is ein Stahlbad, to quote Adorno in German, right? Fun is a medicinal bath. Um, it's no fun, right? Fun is it's no fun, fun at all. That is what Marcuse's desperation move looked like, right? He was... People love to take Marcuse as the optimist because he goes full dystopian mode, right? Like Adorno dies trying to think to be not angry. Horkheimer is like, well, maybe there's something like religion. And Marcuse is like, no, fuck it right? Like Rage Against the Machine. He really wants some resistance. He is afraid that it might be over if people don't rage against the machine. And he quit thinking at that moment, but sadly he didn't stop writing. And so we have to deal with one of the most important thinkers of the mid-20th century, having written a terrible book, which is terribly successful with people who are trying to somehow get over the necessity for a party and their fear of authoritarianism and therefore try to somehow disembark Lukács via like amputating his thought from his historical background, which was the only true foundation for his thinking, right? That's why he turned counter-revolutionary afterward, just like Kosh both in their own ways, both sticking to Marxism in their own ways. Of course, right, these were heroes. I don't want to badmouth them. But, like, the new left was trying to get out of that. They were trying to forget the memory of revolutionary Marxism, of orthodox Marxism, and of the old left via repression. If we want to get beyond the new left, which we are not, which we are definitely not, then we need to forget the 20th century consciously there is no way to live with this shit 
on that point, it, it seemed like there was two conversations that sort of filled up the whole question and answer. One was the one that Andreas brought up, which was this distinction between bourgeois society and capitalism, this like specificity of 1848. And I think at one, at one point, McNair says, Marx and Engels thought that 1848 was novel, but it actually wasn't. Like that it was just another repetition of this sort of bourgeois, you know, revolutionary attempts. That was interesting. So there's some tension there. But then, of course, as Stefan just said, there was this tension about 1968 as well. These sort of two events on sort of 50 years away, on it, or maybe a bit more away from Lukács. And this kind of, the way that Feinberg was talking about it, not just at this event, but all weekend, was this tension between Marcuse and Adorno. And that he even at one point during the Q&A, he sort of doesn't use the word, but he sort of blames Platypus for being a bit too Adornian. He sort of says that we're a bit pessimistic about the new left, whereas Marcuse really sort of gives this blueprint for accepting the new left, as, as Pam said before, a sort of historical, they were acting historically again after the sort of the, the new social movements were after the sort of... Uh, dead zone of uh, 1950s and early 1960s. So there's, there's sort of this dual tension between those two historical moments. I guess this is where the absence of the Cliffites were felt, right? Because so Feinberg thinks we were going to move where we can, right? He says, okay, Marcuse was clear to us. He told us you're not doing, you're not making the revolution. So he says in a period where there's no real possibility of overthrowing the state and the capitalist system, you move where you can. And that's what's happening in the new left. Now, I think that if we had, let's say, the Socialist Workers' Party on the panel, they would have to say, right, like, what were you trying to do? Because you were trying to build a party. And in what way was that a different attempt? Was it an attempt to overcome, like, that inability to create the possibility for a return to Marx and build the party? Or was it also just tailing behind events in the way that the rest of the new left did? I guess that that conversation was was absent. Feinberg um, said to me that the the pessimistic thing about Platypus is that we don't see the social movements at the at the moment. Uh, so now, and that Adorno also was was just thinking about the administered world and like the dystopia, and that's why we should favor Marcuse because Marcuse. Um, gives us the opportunity today to see that there are actually possibilities to to change something and we should go with him. So he he talked to me um, just very briefly after one of the panels. Then when I was listening to, to the panel again, I was struck because he said that like in the 50s and 60s, 60s there, were, there, there were no social movements and that the the student movement of the uh, 68 movement was coming out of nowhere, so out of the dystopia, and that now the, all the social movements are kind of struggling with the failures of movements before, but the 68 movements basically was not connected to any social movement before, and that's why they were also not failing. Maybe just to ground this... Uh, whole issue of the administered society and the 60s. So I'm going to read from the transcript here. So Feinberg says, Lukács thought that you could not have reification without the tension arising between the reified forms and the human content, and that was to be the foundation for the revolution. That was why you could have Marxism as an alternative to bourgeois thought, 
and the social movements that would not just modify this or that aspect of capitalism, but rather overthrow it. Now, when you read One Dimensional Man or Adorno in the early 1960s, you get the impression that reification is total and that there is no longer this tension between form and content. The human side has now become completely absorbed in the commodity structure. And that was an exaggeration, but a very fruitful exaggeration because it corresponded to a kind of dystopianism that led to lots of resistance. Precisely because you are in a dystopia, you must become an individual and break out of the forms that everyone else is overcome by. So it's a strange paradox that this extreme dystopian logic produces resistances. In other words, reproduces the tension between form and content that it was supposed to eliminate. And so I think this is a way of thinking about how the new left arises out of a kind of desperation about the administered society. You know, we often talk about in Platypus how we'd like to capture the sort of confessions of the new left. That, I think, to me, is a very good way of capturing what the new left was thinking that it was doing, right? Like embodying these kinds of like moments of resistance that could somehow create openings or cracks. Um, and that that's, that's why reification is like helpful because it helps us understand that in the totalizing, exaggerated, uh, reified society, what you have is individuals that break through and represent these moments of resistance which does away with, to return to something that was said earlier, the necessity for the party as a mediator, the lessons of history and the transformations of the new forms, uh, the new social relations, that relationship to form and content that the party offers, as opposed to like the breakthrough individuals that create moments of resistance, uh, which to me sounds like this kind of romantic idea of breaking from capitalism through the outside. Thanks, and I, just to, to add to that, also uh, in, in, in Platypus we want to, or we borrow the phrase from, from Walter Benjamin to brush history against the grain. And I think it's interesting to brush the new left against this sort of self-understanding in that it maybe gave itself in hindsight that you mentioned, Pam, and talk about, you know, the crisis of Stalinism, 1956, there is a moment, you know, when Horkheimer and Adorno, <laughs> they sit in their kitchen and discuss whether they should rewrite or not update, but I mean, I guess sort of update uh, a manifesto, right? So I guess that, that, you know, that we also try to raise that history against, you know, its self-understanding given to it in hindsight, because I don't think it's, you know, it's fair to, to dismiss the new left in that way, right? Especially nowadays, because I think that there is a lot of hostility towards the neoliberal forms of institutionalizing the new left, which were like at the same time, I think one of the starting points um, or one of the main discontents the millennial left had at, at, its, at its beginning. But like I said, I, I want to stress that I think there was something there, you know, like there was some, some sort of attempt to, like Stefan raised this earlier, attempt to break away from that, right? It was the new left, you know? The problem is that on the one hand, the new left really influenced history, right? That's why neoliberalism is something different from that cultural productive episode of capitalism, which the new left encountered as the normal. And this is kind of seen as the political success of the of the new left, right? And 
people then like it or dislike it. But this is just because the new left was an important political phenomenon. It had some impact on capitalism. But what it could have been would have been a clarification of the concept of the left in history in its relation to what Marxism had been. And this did not happen. And that's why they reproduced capitalism, right, as the same old problem. I mean, of course, in a certain way, right, they could not could not have put a simple stop to it. In so far, I don't mean like they could have overthrown what capitalism would have been, but they just became a part of capitalism where they thought that they would could, uh, go over and beyond it. And this seems to be the problem of the left whenever it wields some power, which most of the times it doesn't for the last years since the new left, right? And so, yeah, the new left itself becomes a taboo for us in a certain way, I guess, because we don't really know how we should orient ourselves towards this new left, which by now has become right like the grandfather generation and whose conversations, right, like about what did they mean when they read Lukács become more and more opaque to us. And the question is, how do we deal with that, with that opacity of the mid 20th century? Yeah, I think it's worthwhile to raise this, Andreas, that what is it that was there, right? There was something there. Um, and the framing of the return to, to Marx, right? The necessity to return to the raison d'etre of Marxism. Maybe that was there, but how was it handled? And one thing that we read in the reading group in, is the C. Wright Mill's letter to the New Left, where he tells, this is 1960, so quite early on. And he says, you know, go, go back and read Lenin again. Be careful. He says, be careful, read Lenin again, be careful, and read Rosa Luxemburg too. And, you know, when we hear Feinberg speak, there's a kind of forgetting of that advice that the new left gave to itself. And so we have to wonder, well, what happened to that attempt to return to clarify what the object of Marxism was about? Was the return to Marxism the liquidation of Marxism? Is that what the new left did? Is there something else? Because I agree, we have to deal with it. I mean, we don't have a choice in Platypus because it is the dominant way through which people unconsciously, right? They don't have to consciously like recognize it, but they adopt a kind of left Marxist perspective through the new left. And it happens again and again and again. Platypus was founded back in 2006, 2007, and it's still happening. And so... We have to make that apparent that the liquidation of Marxism was the way that the new left returned to Marx. And that leaves us with a big problem. On the question of Lenin, um, there was a point in which Professor Feinberg brought up Lukács' 1924 Lenin book as well, which I was, I was very interested to see the ways in which Feinberg would invoke Lenin in this discussion. He was the only one who really brought up that text particularly, but he said he was talking about how Lenin speaks of the actuality of the revolution in the, in the sort of, you know, period of the First World War and the first and the Third International. And then he used that to say, well, the new left didn't have the actuality of the revolution. Instead of had this, it had the administered society and therefore Marxism took on a different meaning. Like the, the rediscovery of Marxism in the new left sort of had this different quality. And I always found that, in, I found that interesting coming out of the panel to, to, 
think about the way I'm going to go back and read Feinberg's book to sort of think about see where he invokes Lenin as well to talk about the new left because I'm not sure Marcuse really references it that, that much there is this perspective of the SWP or Cliffites that would have raised like well we were the inheritors of Lenin right like it's not the case that you just have the administered society they would emphasize the continuity which is presents like its own problems Right. So whereas Feinberg was emphasizing the discontinuity, they had to kind of like think the world anew. You don't have crisis of Marxism. You don't have the party in the 20th, in the early 20th century. What you have is the administered society and the resistance of the individuals. You know, the SWP might have said, well, hold on a minute. Actually, you do have this movement uh, for socialism. And we were trying to connect the early 20th century to the lineage of the the lineage of Lenin to the mid-20th century. But, you know, I don't want to parrot something that... I, I would just be curious how they would respond to that. They certainly have... The Tony Clips tradition certainly has this dual character in the late 70s. One, they had this Leninist turn. Tony Clips writes this two-volume book on Lenin, and they sort of go against their earlier, quote, Luxembourgist uh, origins that uh, McNair brought up. But also, I think this is when they start reading Lukács as well. Or aside, you know, a limited reading of Lukács, and so that's an interesting dual character of the sort of new left Cliffites. And it's interesting because Mike McNair brought up this very—I don't know—to me, like maybe obscure, but but interesting point that, like after fifty-six, after the the secret speech by Khrushchev and the the global crisis of Stalinism. You know, we have a lot of disaffected former leftists, Stalinists, um, and he said that, you know, th that that Lukacs became a way, like the the appropriation of Lukacs became a way for them to not, you know, turn towards Trotskyism. So he said that that Lukacs basically so, you know, showed a way out for these, you know, leftist intellectuals disaffected with official Marxist-Leninism. To not, you know, turn towards Trotskyism. So, I wonder what you guys made of that. Maybe just to read that part, he says the emergence of Lukacianism and a variance of appropriations of the Frankfurt School, but also the appropriations of soft Maoism, among other things. This all emerged in the aftermath of 1956 among people who were not prepared to become Trotskyists. That's an interesting formulation. Not prepared to become Trotskyists. The Trotskyists remained a minority. People broke from it, like Tony Cliff, who thought of himself as a Luxembourgist. They were influenced directly by Lukacs because of their non-Trotskyism, of history and class consciousness specifically, because of their non-Trotskyism. When the Mandalite International fell apart in the mid-1970s, the Cliffite tendency became the largest one globally, and their ideas spread widely across the far left. I think, right, like this comes from Mike, ne Mike McNair's general historiography of Marxism, because what Mike McNair's try to do over the whole panel is he tries to frame Lukács as a revisionist, as a, in deep down in the core, as a revisionist, neo-Kantian, Bernsteinian. And of course, Lenin, Luxembourg and Trotsky in their own way are considered revisionists, right? Like, um, Luxembourg herself says at the founding congress um, of the KPD, the German Communist Party, that she is going to do, they are going to do a revision 
of the lessons of 1848, uh, which Marx and Engels proclaimed in the manifesto, that they are going to return to the manifesto because the spirit of Marxism was the revolution of the working class for the end goal of socialism, and that this was the only thing that defined Marxism in a certain way. And I think, right, like for McNair, it's like all of these people are the problem. Luxembourg, Lenin, Trotsky, and Lukashenkoch, because they are breaking the party line. They are overcomplicating things and they're trying to shoot for the stars, reach for the stars in a way which is impossible and complicates and maybe even turns impossible the idea to organize the working class, which easily could become the most powerful agent in capitalism and therefore bring us over to socialism, right? It's a different idea of what Marxism is and it's to be taken seriously in this regard, right? And so everyone who reads Lukács is a potential Trotskyist, right? Is a potential splitter, but they're just the people who don't even have the balls to understand themselves as these useless wreckers. That's what McNair is saying. I guess, I mean, right, the counter, right, is, is Chris's clarification of the object of Marxism, that at one point, that there was a certain maturity about the socialist movement in the early 20th century that could lead to a kind of neo-Kantian question about the very raison d'etre of Marxism, that that showed a certain maturity of the left and that insofar as Marxists understand their task to be that kind of self-critical mirror, that capacity to reflect on the goals and ends of socialists' politics, that it could play a role, that it didn't have to be about a collapse or an overcomplication, but a matter of self-clarification and reflection. But it'd be in retrospect, right, like the self-clarification and, and reflection appears to be the source of the splitting and the barbarism of the left. But perhaps it's because that self-clarification didn't happen. Something, something else happened. Absolutely. And Lukács and Kors books are the expression that this was graspable at the moment, but something failed terribly, right? Because um, Korsh is a rather unimportant, rather conservative social democrat before, and Lukács is a bourgeois thinker, right? And it's not the second, but the third international, the revolutionary movement which found, leads to the founding of the third international, the communist international, which enables them to reflect on what Marxism was, right? And not just like as something they learned from books, but from their own experience within the party and its own fall. That's what enabled them. And this could only be made conscious through the actions of Lenin, Luxembourg, Trotsky, and the people who were joining them in their struggle. Yeah. Working through forms of misrecognition in and through practice and self-reflection. Yeah, the reification of the Second International could have been the potential for world revolution. That's what Lukács' book is about. Yeah, that's what the book is about. Thanks, you guys. I think that was that's a very, very, you know, fine point to end the discussion on. Yeah, I want to thank you all for, for <laughs> you know, being part of this discussion, continuing this discussion. I want to thank Ryan specifically for getting out of bed at fucking 5 a.m. in the morning. And... Um, Hero. <laughs> 
see you next time. Bye, guys. Production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye! complex chart that was sent around did you see that it has like a whole bunch of them yeah 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 yeah, yeah. the atf yeah right yeah. who like knocked on people's doors when biden got into power in 2020 and asked people why they had so many guns like they too are ideologically mobilized yes yeah what is the state if not uh, a force of armed men it's not a force it's a it's like a term of armed men
the, the Lenin yeah, definition. The Lenin. <laughs> Shit, I'm forgetting it now. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yes, I know what you mean. We know the quote. <laughs> it lives rent free in my head. Uh, so the deep state. Yeah, so of course, like, part of it is that, right, deep state is against Trump. Clearly, is using all of its resources, means, staffing in this process where actually the Democratic Party is in cahoots completely with them because they're like, meaning this is what the Twitter files revealed. Of course, the in cahoots of the FBI and the CIA with True. the Democratic Party. Truth. Like with the Democratic Party, right, to suppress information like the Biden laptop case. Yeah. Yep. Right, and then it's like, oh, all these, you know, theories that were thought to be conspiracies and hoaxes and Russia the hoaxes, Russia, the Russia the hoax of the Russia land, Ukraine war like, was made and they had to take it the back. They were like, we censored that shit, but I guess that was wrong. <laughs> yeah, the I guess it wasn't Ukraine. fake. Yeah, the whole fucking Ukraine Russia conflict is fucking conjured up by the Democratic Party with Russia collusion shit. Yeah. So the deep state, that's it. That's all. Just saying. The deep state wanted this war. Just deep state, dog. Okay. 